Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. Let's do that silly show. Let's do that. All right, here we go. Today is March 14th. That is also known as Pi Day 2016, and this is episode 153 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. It's really only Pi Day if you follow our naming and numbering system for dates and, and months. That is true. That is true. And by the way, I am pretty sure that Pi Day is a made-up holiday by a, a, a group of cheap hardware resellers. Mm-hmm. They make these little, these little cheap, hard-to-use computers. I'm pretty sure it's kind of like, you know, Sweetest Day was, was invented by uh, Hallmark. Well, Pi Day was invented by the Big Pi, as I like to call it. I think you're right. I think you're right. I was under the assumption that it was actually invented by an offshoot of the De Beers Corporation who invented <laughs> diamonds for engagement rings. This is a true story. They, 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 in, they with, invented diamonds. No, no, no. They came up with the concept of, of engagement rings be, needing to be a diamond. Ah, yes. That was all their marketing that, that became tradition in our culture. By the way, that is purely fact. Look it up. Yeah. So I thought this was something like uh, perhaps somebody in the bakery industry uh, just trying to push the product. No, I think it's the, there's a cartel of computer manufacturers. Uh. Mm-hmm. There's I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like the beers, right? But just for little single board computers. So it's like blood silicon. Yeah, basically. Mm. And, and by the way, I will reiterate what you said. The story of the <clears throat> of diamond engagement rings is fascinating. If you, if you go back and read it, it's almost as fascinating as the story of marketing cigarettes. We are slaves to marketing. This yes. is what I found. That's right. And uh, I'll be honest, I, I got engaged last summer, and I did not do a diamond. I did something else. Rebel. I am. I am. And we were in this weekend, uh, my fiance and I went wedding band shopping, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating industry. It really is fascinating. These little tiny rocks sitting in a case worth sixteen thousand dollars. You're like, I, I don't, I Wor- don't understand. Worth in quotes. Right. <laughs> I don't. Well, it's whatever the free market dictates, right? That's right. It's crazy. It is crazy. Anyway, completely off topic. Totally but. off topic. So, uh, Just, uh, yeah, slaves spe- to marketing. Speaking of that, the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours, and do not represent those of our employers. We will not be counting on De Beers to be a sponsor anytime soon. That's what, what we're saying, really. I think so. <laughs> so, um, so Andy. Yes, it, sir. Have you ever maybe told a little white lie and got caught by it? No. No? Okay, well. Then that would be a white lie. <laughs> so our first story comes from CSO Online, and the title is Compromised Data Goes Public is Stamina. Stamina's. Recovers from attack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Little white lies. Maybe not so little. 
Well, well, first off, I find it fascinating that, you know, DDoSs are getting bigger and badder. So the demand for DDoS providers is getting bigger and badder. And uh, what happens when the bad guys start taking down, off, uh, taking down DDoS providers? That's right. Anyway, please go on with the yeah, story. So, so Staminus is a, uh, a, it's a DDoS mitigation provider. I suppose my read is it's like a little mini Akamai, I, I guess. And uh, it's known to host such a, a spectacular websites as the Minecraft community and uh, sites maintained by the Ku Klux Klan. Just for some background. So, uh, so yes, Staminus, uh, and I remember seeing some tweets about this last week, uh, was offline for quite some time. And throughout, they were, hey, obviously, if uh, your DDoS provider is out you know, you're, and you use them, your site is down. So it's depending on, <clears throat> excuse me, depending on how they're architected, yeah, quite quite inconvenient, and and so um, it, throughout the throughout the uh, attack or throughout the outage, the uh, the company or someone from the company had been tweeting out that they were having router problems and it had cascaded throughout their network. Well, they were having problems, but maybe not of that nature. And so, uh, so apparently they had been uh, uh, hacked up, up one side and down the other side, and had roughly fifty gigabytes of data stolen, including network diagrams, uh, customer databases, possibly credit card numbers. Um, but don't worry, the passwords stolen from the user accounts were 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 hashed with uh, MD5. And, and and so so you're saying they're encrypted. They they were they were totally encrypted. And by the way, somebody come, come on, that was an easy layup. So somebody uh, somebody you know took to downloading that and trying to crack the um, the hashes that were associated with the KKK accounts, oh boy. and found that they were all variants, unsurprisingly, of racial slurs. So anyway, there was some hypothesis put forward on, on how the attack happened but you know basically it it appears that a, a likely um, sequence of events related to uh, a, a SQL injection in one of their websites which allowed the attacker to um, you know, get a shell and then they just kind of went everywhere from there I, you know I think that by the way I've seen that happen in far too many incidents that I've that I've had to work on, it is a very common problem, right? And why I, by the way, I've I've been taking some heat lately for my hating on Active Directory, but you know it it is this sort of thing that will get you burned really bad. Well, we can talk about the Active Directory part later. Yeah. Anyway, Active Directory wasn't part of this. However, you can imagine that if, uh, if a server you have has SQL injection vulnerabilities and someone is able to leverage those, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an easy opportunity for much wider spread uh, compromise, which I have also seen dozens of times. So, uh, so moving on. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the big thing for me is don't mislead people. I mean, <laughs> it's one thing. It's one thing that to be a you know an important provider 
and and have an outage, right? And certainly people are going to be angry with you. But if you lie about it, uh, you know, I, I just don't know what to say about that. It, that it, it just really blows my mind that someone would do this, especially knowing that the person, whoever was on the other side, you know, that the person in this company probably knew they were being compromised. And anyway. Well, I, I get the feeling that this is not the most sophisticated company out there. No, that's true. I mean, we go through and we they, they really sort of dissected their environment and it was very, very immaturely run based on this article. There was not a lot there that <clears throat> indicated to me a high level of cluefulness. Yes. Well said. So, you know, and I was actually just checking if their website was up. It appears to be. It right now is just hosting basically a statement from their CEO and a fact about what happened. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the challenge is it's really difficult to see what's behind the curtain when you're going out and evaluating companies like this. So, Well, you know, DDoS is a really, really tough problem. And there are ways to simulate and, and you know, kind of attack yourself with DDoS to test it, but... DDoSs are continuing to be a really challenging issue. And I think part of the problem is that most companies have this concept of we can just go buy a DDoS service uh, or, you know, DDoS protection service and be done. When in actuality, I really feel that DDoS resiliency is much more about your design and your strategy than it is necessarily hiring a provider to just clean your pipes. Uh, because the problem is that it's really tough to know the difference between legitimate traffic and DDoS traffic uh, if, if your attacker is really sophisticated. So, And there's tons of different types of DDoSs. They kind of get all lumped together, and I think people don't always, at least at a, at a purchasing level, don't always look at the nuances involved with different types of DDoSs and, and how they can affect you. And, you know, I... I really try to to advise folks to look far more at a you know resiliency strategy involved of spreading your key assets around, understanding you know what would happen if certain assets got DDoSed and that pipe was full. How are you going to continue to operate, uh, and how are you going to make sure that a DDoS isn't really just a distraction from something else going on, as well as having a, you know a, a decent provider. But if somebody's going to play, who's got a bigger pipe with you? This is really something you've got to fix at an ISP level or move your stuff to a content delivery network that can absorb it uh, and is very sophisticated in dealing with it. It's a tough problem. But I think yeah. the other challenge is, as I was kind of alluding to, is we don't validate these services very often. Right. You know, and, and depending on how you have it set up, you know, they may be waiting for you to reach out to them to initiate mitigation. That's very true. It, it it by the way it is really worth as you get into in the the groove of using one of these uh, mitigation systems to, to build a test plan around it like you said and and not only that but have an engagement strategy that's documented and understood and tested with the provider who are they going to call if 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 it's on them to detect it who are they going to call is there is is that person always going to be available? Is it you know is it a common um, you know staffed twenty four seven 
center that they're calling. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of little nuances. The other thing I was going to mention is I, I really think you're onto something with designing solutions to be resilient from the beginning. The problem that I see, and by the way, I think that things like cloud create really big new opportunities for that where you you know you you have this opportunity to scale dynamically as as load increases and that load might be legitimate traffic or might be ddos traffic but i think that the thing that troubles me a little bit is the asymmetry in costs and and so for from the attacker's perspective you know they're not paying for bandwidth you know they're they're typically using compromised systems who, who, you know, many thousands of compromised systems, all of which might be on significantly sized internet connections unto themselves. And, and for you, the potential victim to you know, pay for the, the capacity to mitigate something like that, it's, it, it's very difficult. And by the way, this makes me wonder about the whole business model of the ransom DDoS for ransom or ransom for DDoS, DDoS, however you want to think about that, where, you know, uh, uh, this is happening quite a bit with the DD4BC and um, I forget some of the offshoots, right? But, you know, the, the, the challenge is these companies or these organizations, I use that term loosely, are, are approaching victims and saying, look, you know, pay us a couple of Bitcoins and we'll go away. Well, you know, nobody wants to pay the ransom. Uh, however, if you, you know, you, you can't mitigate it for that much. You know, it's going to cost you many times that that amount of money to mitigate that attack. And that's my concern. So the next obvious evolution is that these various, you know, cyber gangs will start saying, you pay us, we'll keep other people from DDoSing you. You know, we saw we saw that. Well, I mean, we didn't see that particular thing, but with that proton mail that mm -hmm. was was uh, DDoS back in uh, the third or fourth quarter of last year, where uh, I think, in fact, it was DD4BC that that uh, that went after them, and you know, the the, the um, I, th I think they paid right. They that was the the deal was they paid, but they still got DDoSed, right? Yes, and it I wasn't. Recall it, that. Yep. And it wasn't. But didn't they say it was a different group? It was a different them? group. That's yeah. right. So the other thing I, I wanted to point out real quick, and then we can move on, is the other challenge with DDoS is who runs the network pipes versus security. So if you've got a, a segregated group of you know infosec in one camp and your network team in a different camp, who owns DDoS? Yeah, that's right. And that can be a real struggle. And that could be a cultural struggle. That can be a siloed struggle. Uh, and I, I really think that if you've got some political problems, which most organizations do between the network team and the infosec team, you're going to really struggle because part of DDoS mitigation is design work too. Yeah, and I, I think in some of the newer environments, you may even have like an application or a hosting team mm -hmm. thrown into the mix too. It's a possible and owner. A lot of network teams, you know, let's be honest here, don't really want the security team mucking around in their world. That's and, right. Uh, we lose that opportunity to better mitigate DDoS because the network teams can be very standoffish to security teams. Yeah. Well, and vice versa. You know, let's be clear. But I think at any reasonable size organization I've seen, this has been a problem. 
Yeah, I, I, honestly, that's that's a failure of leadership, right? I mean, it's yeah. that that yeah. arrives as a result of conflicting priorities. Yep. So, anyway, moving on. So, you know, you I know you're involved in patch management, vulnerability management. Are you, are you confused about the difference between vulnerability management and patch management? I'm not, no, but I've also, you know, been doing this a long time and it's my core job these days. But if I were just a pure IT guy, I could see some challenges there. You know, if I wasn't a, a hardcore security guy and I'm just trying to manage my Windows box or whatever, maybe. Yeah, so our, our next story comes from Dark Reading and the title is Patch Management Still Plagues Enterprise. Half of organizations don't even know the difference between applying a patch and remediating a vulnerability. Wow. So so we're vuln shaming now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I assume that if it's named, they probably know, right? They, I mean, I'm sure they, they know if the vulnerability was named, you know, shell shock, heart bleed, ghost, you know, drain. <laughs> I just made that one up. Trench foot. I'm still, I'm still driving for trench foot. Uh, it's gonna happen. Yeah, whatever. Sorry. You, you better get busy fuzzing some stuff to, uh, to, to find your own so you can name it. Oh, I'm fuzzing something all right every night. You know her. <laughs> Jesus. Oh boy. Locked right into that one. Yep. 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 So. So I've got some comments on this one. So let's go ahead and lay it out. Then I'll kind of give you my my thoughts. Yeah, sure. So. Um, so the company, uh, Triplayer, with uh, exposure research, or sorry, with dimension research, dimensional research, uh, sponsored a survey of 400 IT, 480 IT professionals on their patch management practices. And basically they found that it's not very clear or, or there's a lot of confusion amongst these professionals on you know, what what constitutes a patch and what doesn't. I do have to wonder, you know, what kinds, if, if those IT professionals were all of the same ilk or I, it seems like maybe they're, they're not, you know, the IT professionals denotes a wide spectrum of, of people. But, you know, I think that the problem of this is trying to point out here is that there is a, there is an overlap between vulnerabilities and patches, but they don't, completely overlap if, th if you think about the world in terms of venn diagrams and i see this i see this a, a, a fair amount particularly when vulnerabilities especially you know some of the more significant ones like let's say shell shack you know that that is a a really serious vulnerability and there was for a period of time no patch and and so i, I really do think that we as pointed out by this article we really need to take a fresh look at this and make sure that our practices are really addressing vulnerabilities and patches are a means to that end. So what's say patches you? are something you can measure and you can track and you can build metrics around and you could see how people are performing and you could hold them accountable. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, Jerry. It's not worth doing if you can't measure it. That's right. This is this is a tough problem in general. So a couple things that you know I wanted to bring up. First, completely somewhat related but somewhat off topic. 
So they mentioned CVE. Uh, I was reading the other day. So if you know much about CVE, it's kind of the industry standard for assigned names and numbers for common, you know, a commonality verbiage for vulnerabilities. But apparently, uh, it's managed by the MITRE Corporation, by the way, uh, for the government. Apparently, they're having a problem right now of actually keeping up with all of the vulnerability requests for CVE numbers. So apparently, there's a new competing project starting up uh, by you know, an open consortium of folks that they want to start up a competitor to CVE because that's what we need. Just more things to track. And well, yeah, I mean, then you can map between, you can map between the two, right? Be handy, right? You keep, keep a spreadsheet. I suppose. Get the, get the, <laughs> get the learn V look up really well. I suppose. Anyway, so apparently Miter's trying to get better at it, but Anyway, so distributed weakness filing is the new competitor for CVE that they're trying to get off the ground. Yeah, and I, I did. I did see some something about that, and I think the intention is good, right? I mean, there, there, there's some practical, pragmatic problems that they're trying to resolve. I do think that you know maybe adding another thing to the mix is not the way, right way to go about it, which I think is your point. Well, here's the challenge I see. Almost every vulnerability management tool and patching system and publication is used to and knows how to reference CVEs. That is a lot of industry momentum. And there's a lot of non-technical people who have learned enough to know how to deal with CVEs. To introduce another system, I think, is a huge upward climb at this point to get it adopted well enough to fill the role that it needs to fill for yeah. enterprise use. You know, maybe for other use, but for enterprise use, you know, people need it integrated with their tools. They need it integrated with their vulnerability management. They need it integrated with their patch remediation tracking. They need it integrated with everything. So CV is there right now. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you raise a really good point that there's a lot of momentum to overcome and uh, probably not going to happen. Yeah, am I saying that there isn't a problem with CV? No. But here's the other thing that I wanted to mention just in patch management in general. Typically, I'm finding that, and I've seen this for a while now, the number of patches coming out is increasing at a fairly good clip. So the load on your IT groups to keep up with those patches is increasing. However, I don't know that most IT groups or asset owners are realizing that and are accounting for that. I, I get the feeling in general, that a lot of remediation work and patching work is treated as a one-off or a distraction from their main work. You know, their main work may be running a database server, not patching Oracle. And it's disruptive. And it is uh, a competition of resources to do that. And they, they feel that it is often, I, I don't want to speak for all IT teams, but my feeling is they they feel like patching work is not core to their mission. It's not value-add, right? It, right. And so I don't feel that a lot of IT groups are built to sustain the ongoing regular patching volume and velocity that we're seeing right now. Far more patches are coming out, and it's going to continue to increase, most likely. Uh, and and we're, we're getting better about automated patching, but still, there's still a lot of challenges. It's not as simple as just, you know... Download your patches on Patch Tuesday and reboot. It's, it's a lot more complicated than enterprise. Well, and particularly as we become more and more dependent on our IT systems, the 
you know, the, the, the desire to not disrupt them becomes pretty, pretty significant. And I, and I will tell you that um, just from personal experience, there's a lot of companies who have significant amounts of time on the calendar every year blocked out where you can't make any change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you're in a retail business, yep. you know, the, the period from, from a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving here in the U.S. until, you know, right, right around after, after Christmas is a no, no fly zone. You cannot yep. make a change. You cannot apply a patch. Um, and, and that's a, I think you're right on. This is a problem that we're going to have to face because it's, you know, it, we're, as the industry is maturing, we're, I, I think we're seeing uh, just more patch volume. More, and, and I think it's partly because we're getting better at it, identifying uh, these weaknesses. And, you know, the, fortunately, most of these are not being found by the bad guys. They're being found by the good guys. That we know of. Well, true. I mean, they're... The the impetus for the patch is typically some kind of a disclosure from a researcher, for for the most part these days. Now I'm not saying that they're not being exploited out there also, but um, that's what that's so so uh, you know. The, but the the other side of it is we're also seeing a trend where these boutique security companies want to make a name for themselves. And so simultaneous with the patch being announced, they go, you know, effectively full disclosure and and give anybody who, you know, who cares a, a roadmap on how to exploit it. And so now you really don't have, you you know, it's great that the patch is out, which, you know, there's a good thing, but you still have, you know, how much time ahead of you before you can apply it. Yeah, it's, it just feels like an imbalance in the industry right now. Patching is not going away, and and it absolutely is becoming more critical. From uh, from it, it is the low hanging fruit to keep your organization safe. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Anyway, moving on to our next story, and this one comes from WeLiveSecurity.com, dot com, and the title is "Android Banking Trojan Masquerades as Flash Player and Bypasses Two Factor Authentication." This is fantastic. The thing that that I really wanted to hit home here is, you know, there's a big trend in the industry, IT industry in general, uh, towards two-factor authentication, and and a very common strategy uh, to that end now is, uh, either a, an authenticator on your phone or an SMS text message to your phone, and. That makes sense if your phone is completely divorced from the application that you're accessing. However, if you, as in this particular case, are you know logging into your bank on your phone and getting the second vector delivered to your phone, you are now exposed to what we see here, which is uh, uh, apparently some enterprising... Um, malicious people had uh, had created a, a Android piece of malware that purports to be a Flash Player for Android. So you install it on your phone. Of course, it asks for administrator rights, and who would say no to a Flash Player for we their phone? We are so conditioned to say yes to any rights request coming from it's any like, app we load. 
I want to play my Flash games. Come on. I I would say it's less than 1% of people when loading on an Android actually look at the specific rights being requested and actually even think about it. I would say most people are just conditioned to say yes. Yeah. And uh, and so this is a this is a pretty insidious little thing and and basically what it does is looks to see what banking applications you have installed on your phone and uh, kind of tells the, the command and control system what you've got. And, uh, and, and the central system will push down a, uh, a fake-looking login screen for whatever service you happen to be using. And so when you go to open your banking application, the malware intercepts that and instead gives you its own login page which you in turn log into and in the background uh, the credentials are sent to the command and control system which triggers the two-factor authentication to get sent to your phone that malware intercepts the token and sends that back to the command and control also and then they clean out your bank account super and then profit yeah and profit that's right so uh so yeah i like i said i i just wish people especially in the context of a you know of a thing like a banking application where you know that people are going to be using their phone to do it you think this through so uh, i don't know there, there is not a great alternative right other than the, the old key fob um and some might say well it's better than nothing well and don't load crap on your phone how's that as an alternative that just seems unreasonable <laughs> all right fine you're right you're right i people gotta have their games just out of control <laughs> but to be fair this is not in the google play store either no, no, and in fact, you I think you basically have to go hunting for this thing. And yeah, and I think you've got to turn something off on your phone to allow something to be loaded that isn't in the Google Play Store. Uh, yeah. So you got to you got to work to load this, but that doesn't stop people. That's right. I mean, again, you you know you want people like people like the control over their phones. That's what they hate about iOS. They don't have that control. Is is this turning into an Apple fanboy rant? No, no, I'm just saying. I mean, if you want, we could give you a moment to... No, no, I'm okay. I feel better now. Okay. All right, so we'll move on to our last story, and this is a doozy. So, so Andy, have you ever really, really screwed up at your job? Like, really screwed up? Yes. I remember once I was managing a firewall in Tokyo from the U.S., and I was doing an upgrade. And it was the middle of the night in Tokyo, which made the middle of the day here. And I sent a command, and the firewall never came back. That was that sinking feeling <laughs> Yep. of, oh boy, what did I do? There's going to be some angry people. There will be people. 10 hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I will be trying to sleep, and they will be blowing up my phone. That's, by the way, also when I learned the joy of remotely accessible KVM. Yes. As I searched for a solution to my idiocy. Yeah. So, How about you? Have you ever screwed up at work, Jay? Um, I mean, aside from working with me, 
Yeah, I was just thinking that was probably the big probably, one. Probably, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty pretty high up there. I, you know, to be honest, I think I've screwed up so many times, I can't even think of a good one to, to mention. It's constant. We're um, not talking about the Dead Hookers Reno anymore, are we? That's off the table? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're past that. Okay. So, uh, so, yeah, you know, some of us, some of us just make big mistakes in our jobs. And if you happen to be an organized crime syndicate, you know, where, where you have, you know, a, a, a team of um, hackers, you know, sometimes you're bound to have some, you're bound to have the bottom 10%, right? The non-performers, the underperformers, the people who deserve to be on a performance plan. And well, apparently that is the case in this next story, where which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is "A Typo Cost Bank Hackers Nearly One Billion Dollars." And uh, so, so that's that's a big ouchie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I, wow. I mean, I, you have to wonder, like, do they, you know, when you are an organized bank you know, banking crime syndicate like this, you know, do you have an interview process? I mean, how do they, how do you make sure that you don't hire people who are going to screw up like this? I, what do you think the punishment was? I mean, you take a finger. I mean, that might slow down their, their, I, I don't know. take a toe. I'm thinking they, they probably didn't get a bonus. Ma- yeah. Maybe, maybe they were sent home for a couple of days. They were suspended. Think about what they've done. Yeah, yeah. They they had a you know, like suspended from work. Maybe they had their coffee rights revoked. Their promotion to lead henchman. Yes. Probably yes. not. Their 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 career path has taken a hit. So so here's the story. We're talking big big time here, right? So the the central bank of Bangladesh has billions of dollars at the Federal Reserve Bank here in the U.S. in New York. Uh, and and I suppose that, you know, the most, lots of uh, central banks around the world store their their cash with the, the Federal Reserve Bank because it's a safe place. And, and since so many banks, uh, these central banks, store so much money, there's special systems in place to transfer that money and 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 this is like the top tier we're talking like top tier banking uh, system right here right this is like where banks are transferring money from from one bank to another this is not like you know us us down in the uh, the trenches trying to get a mortgage or something like that so um so apparently someone allegedly compromised the Bank of Bangladesh. We don't really know the details. There are some reports that it was uh, some kind of malware attack against the Bank of Bangladesh, uh, the Central Bank of Bangladesh, which allowed attackers to access to the uh, the SWIFT account. SWIFT is the name of the the money transfer system operated by the Federal Reserve Bank and participated by all of these banks around the world. And, uh, and so, so the attackers apparently got access to the bank, Central Bank of Bangladesh. So what we're really talking about is a really big credential reuse. Yes. Right now. Uh, of the biggest order. Yeah. And uh, anyway, 
they transferred a, uh, almost a billion dollars to the over the course of I think thirty six different uh, transactions. So they broke into the Bank of Bangladesh, figured out how they did things, figured out what their SWIFT credentials were, right, and then impersonated them to the U.S. Federal Reserve and started transferring money. Right. Around. That's right. And and so they, I believe it was four transactions uh, valued at $101 million actually went through. And on the fifth one, I believe it was, the uh, the one of the, the banks in the process, uh, I guess, you know, they're, the, the plumbing between banks is not very clear, but the attackers were transferring money to in, in the name of different organizations, you know, and, and uh, there's some questions about why the Federal Reserve Bank was not questioning, or the, uh, yeah, the Federal Reserve Bank in New York was not questioning transfers from Bangladesh to these, you know, effectively private entities. But anyway, um, one of the, one of the transact transfers was to this uh, non-governmental organization named the Shalika Foundation, and unfortunately, for our wayward organized crime employee, uh, he he misspelled it. He mis instead of foundation, he spelled it foundation. And uh, and and so Deutsche Bank who apparently was somehow in the loop of transferring the money between uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, the bank, Central Bank of Bangladesh, and wherever this money was headed, which apparently was the Philippines, uh, called up the Central Bank of Bangladesh and said, hey, um, did you mean Shalika Foundation with that, you know, that big transfer of money? And obviously they said, uh, what? And, uh, and so they canceled... The, they canceled uh, $870 million worth of pending transactions. That's a little bit of money. I mean, I know that it's not a lot of money for you, but for most of us, that's a lot of money. I, I can remember it was like when that was a lot of money. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. So, uh, so apparently, like I said, there were $101 million stolen. Apparently, they were able to uh, claw back $20 million. So that means that eighty-one million dollars was uh, was stolen, and and so there are a whole bunch of different articles. Uh, some of them are highly critical, and and quite humorous about the Federal Reserve, like the Zero Hedge article you sent me earlier. Yeah. Um, they're definitely not fans of the Federal Reserve system. <laughs> well, system I found. Admittedly, Zero Hedge is a little fringe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they. The factual evidence they have in here is actually, I, I found later, it came from a Bloomberg story. I hadn't found the Bloomberg story yet I, when I found this. But uh, some very interesting facts that they laid out in the Zero Hedge article. Like the recipient on the Philippine side, apparently it was three different casinos. <laughs> yes. So yes. that's a hell of an ATM withdrawal, if you yeah. ask me. That... You know, you're hitting big on blackjack, you, you know, and you're like, hey, I need to get some money out of the ATM. I'll be right back. I got a billion coming. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in that article, they said that uh, the, the money was used, uh, it was basically laundered through those casinos to pay off debts and buy chips, buy, uh, buy ch I mean, that's a lot. Of, I wonder, do they have like million dollar poker chips? <laughs> Probably. And then it came in and then back offshore again. So yeah. you got to wonder how, although 
in this article, again, it also sort of says that the, the casinos were not complicit. How could they not be? I'm confused by that. I'm, I'm sure there will be more to this story. You don't just steal $81 million and disappear. They, and apparently, by the way, Bangladesh is now incredibly pissed off at the uh, U.S. Fed. Yeah, and uh, that's right. So, so I remember when this first, when the story first broke, and for about a, a period of about a week, there was a lot of swirling accusations that the Federal Reserve Bank had been compromised, and no one quite knew where those allegations were coming from. At least at the time, I remember um, thinking you know, it's not very clear why who, who's making this accusation. Uh, but anyway, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is basically saying, nope. We weren't compromised. It was clearly, uh, you know, it was clearly the bank of Bangladesh, central bank of Bangladesh, and um, you know, sorry, too bad, so sad. And the central bank of Bangladesh is basically saying, "How can you possibly absolve yourself of this? You know, you were transferring money willy-nilly here, there, and everywhere, including to some casinos, apparently." And uh, and that didn't raise any red flags. I mean, you know, you're the you're the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. How, how can you well, not? Well, the question is, what's normal behavior? And it's very easy after the fact for the Bank of Bangladesh to go, hey, 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 you screwed up. But the reality is, we don't know what normal, acceptable behavior was for all these banks. This might have been normal. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, they could, I mean, this may just have been like, oh, that they're transferring money to the casino again. You know, that like they do every year. Or who knows, right? So. <laughs> For obviously, this is a problem. If the Swift account can be impersonated this easily, we don't know all the details around that. But clearly, there should probably be some stronger controls, and I bet there will be after this incident. But up before this incident, it's very possible that these foreign banks insisted upon very easy, low friction transfers without a lot of paperwork or hassle so they can get done what they need to get done. And the, and the Fed is their, you know, they're the customer of the Fed, Federal Bank. So the Federal Bank may have, you know, when you're dealing with customers depositing millions and millions of dollars, you kind of have to do a little bit of what they say. Hey, I just, something just occurred to me. Do you think that there is a Android application for the Swift system? Oh, I'm sure there is. I bet. I bet if they had an iPhone, they could have used one touch, and this would not have been a problem. Well, I'm just thinking our, our last story. I mean, right? I mean, I'm just saying maybe they do have two-factor authentication. It just happens to be SMS. Mm. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, be, I bet. I bet it's something incredibly basic and stupid. Probably like a routing number and a password. You know, I, I got to say, when when you're talking about a billion dollar, you know, billion dollar transactions, it just seems like maybe that reaches the clip level where like a like a phone call, like, you know, I don't know. It just seems a little, a little odd to me. Well, a billion here, a billion there. Eventually, it starts to add up some, some real money. Yeah, eventually. So, uh, so we we did have one more thing to talk about, which is an update, by the way, and that is uh, related to Home Depot. So, Our uh, favorite breach, Home Depot. Yes, yes. So, Home Depot for those who are you know new or whatever. Uh, Home Depot was breached a, a while back. Uh, they had fifty six million credit cards stolen, and um, 
Uh, obviously, they were the target of many a lawsuit, and they have agreed to settle the class action lawsuit against them for the cost of $19.5 million. Which is a pittance. Which is a very small amount. However, I, I, I'll get, back, get to that in a second. So $19.5 million, $13 million of which is to compensate customers for out-of-pocket losses. And the other $6.5 million is to apparently to buy a law firm, a new skyscraper. No, it's for 18 months of cardholder protection services. Oh, I thought that was in the. I thought that was included nope. in the thirteen million. Nope, uh, thirteen million includes the legal fees. Okay, so it's going to list. buy the new skyscraper for the credit protection companies. Correct. Ah, okay. Well, anyway, you know, one of the things that it, it has never been made very clear about this particular breach is how many customers actually suffered a loss. Yeah, because in general, if it's on a debit card with Visa MasterCard logos or a credit card, it's not the consumer's liability. Or your liability is limited to fifty bucks. Right. Uh, in the worst, in the worst case, right. So now there there may be, you could argue time and anguish and pain and suffering and annoyance factor and all that kind of stuff, but actual material loss is fairly limited. Now, if you had something like somebody drained your account and you're starting bouncing checks and your rent payment doesn't go through, you know, then you can start to see some very significant problems perhaps, but Yeah. Yeah. But but even so, I I just you know, I think there was a there was a discussion about Wendy's the other I think uh Krebs had a story about Wendy's and and um I think even to to this point they're not completely sure that the Wendy's breach has been solved because they're apparently still seeing card fraud but uh, there was a there was a comment made in there that a lot of these big bridges like with Target and Home Depot and and Neiman Marcus there weren't I mean the the, the number of people who were um who experienced fraud on their cards was in the thousands not in the millions yeah and and so you know I I so when you compare that with the fact that the liability is limited, and so yes, absolutely, some people were probably inconvenienced pretty pretty significantly because they're you know they bounce checks or what have you. But even so, that's it's hard to get to thirteen million bucks um, in my mind. But uh, anyway, it's a it is a small small number, which I thought was a, an interesting update. So, anyway, um, yeah, I think that's all. Anything else you want to cover? Uh, no, I think that's, uh, that's good. I awesome. think it's good for, for this week. Awesome. Well, thank you again for listening, everyone. Uh, thanks to those who have contributed to our uh, Patreon campaign. Definitely appreciate that. Very much thank you, yes. Thank you. If you have given us a rating on iTunes, thank you very much. And if you haven't, we ask that you do. It uh, makes us feel good, you know. It's internet points. It's true. Uh, you can follow the show on uh, on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callot on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. And with that, we will talk again next week. 
Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. With another illuminating podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.